there's tons of displaced children that have been forced into fake orphanages and then shuttled into different trafficking networks, whether that's for labor or for sex. But a lot of times you'll find Americans going down to Haiti or going to Thailand looking for children. Human what age are you talking general, about? We're talking ages what, what? from you know six all the way to seven, eight. I mean, this is a horrible, it's much, much younger and much, much more pervasive. So there's children right now around the world literally being raped 30 times a day plus for these jobs. And they pay way more for a child than they do for a normal adult prostitute. Welcome to the Regenerative Warrior Podcast, Doctor's Edition. One of the fastest growing regenerative medicine and anti-aging podcasts in the world. Each and every Tuesday and Thursday, I talk to the top experts to show doctors how to market, manage, and magnify their practice to help more people and make more money. Each episode is short and to the point without wasting your time with pointless conversation. Learn the skills to be successful without traveling to seminars or paying for expensive consulting fees. Are you ready? Because I am. I'm Dr. Ross Carter, and it's time to start the Regenerative Warrior Podcast now. Two things before we get started. The views expressed by our guests are not necessarily those of Dr. Carter or this podcast. One of our podcast partners has just announced special pricing for our listeners. Wharton's Jelly Allograph for $475 per cc. You heard that right, only $475. White papers are available. This is for a limited time, so act now. Why pay double or triple the price from other providers? To learn more or to order, text your name and the word JELLY, J-E-L-L-Y, to 561-962-1231. Write that down. It's 561-962-1231. On with the show. Hi, this is Dr. Ross Carter with the Regenerative Warrior Podcast. I'd like to introduce... A uh, very special guest, Dave Lopez from the Operation Underground Railroad. I said that correctly, right, Dave? You sure did. How's it going, Ross? Thanks for having me on. You're welcome. So now, many people who are listening probably have not heard much about Operation Underground Railroads. Could you give us a little history about what your organization and your charitable organization does? Absolutely. Yeah. The short answer is, organization combats sex trafficking around the world. We work in about 20 countries, and we infiltrate different trafficking rings, and we work with local law enforcement in about 20 different countries, including our own country, and we help law enforcement to go in and make arrests of traffickers while rescuing sex trafficked victims as well as survivors of these horrible networks, and we put aftercare centers around the world. In all the countries that we work in, we set up aftercare for all the survivors to be able to have long-term care after the rescue, which is really the most important part of our mission. So that's the short answer. It started with a gentleman named Tim Ballard. Tim Ballard left Homeland Security. He was part of a child crimes unit that was focusing on child pornography. And he started to realize where all these kids were, but a lot of times the kids weren't Americans. And so there wasn't a lot of resources that could be allocated for it. So he decided to get out of law enforcement and really go out on a limb and start this nonprofit organization to come alongside law enforcement from the outside to give himself more latitude to be able to rescue more children. So that's how we got started. It was about five and a half, six years ago when Tim stepped out and made that leap. And then a bunch of us jumped on board with him shortly thereafter. And then Glenn Beck got behind it and a number of other people. And, and we made had some really big successes early on. And that's what kind of sparked the video storytelling component about what we do. So how did you get involved in this organization? 
at the beginning, right when it was kind of coming together, we had a really big mission in Colombia. And a buddy of mine that was also in the SEAL teams, I started in the U.S. SEAL teams, I got out in 2012. And a buddy of mine in the SEAL teams already was connected to Tim. And he said, hey, man, did you hear about what these guys are doing to combat sex trafficking? And at the beginning, I honestly didn't have a clue how pervasive sex trafficking was. And it was the first time I got to really understand it. And they asked me to come help them in Medellin, Colombia, in the territory of the infamous Pablo Escobar and the cartels, which were connected to some of the traffickers that we were working against. And they asked me to come down and help. We just had a documentary just recently get finished being edited about this operation. But we call it Operation Triple Take because it happened in three separate cities in Colombia all on the same day. And it was about 122 survivors and children that were rescued from that one operation. It was a massive, massive sting that took about three months to set up. And there's a movie coming out about it later this year that Jim Caviezel is acting in. So that was literally that mission was the first mission about five and a half years ago that I was a part of. And then it just opened my eyes to the whole reality of it. And it's really all I wanted to do afterwards. And so I didn't jump on full bore right after that. I was kind of like a hired guy that would bring in whenever needed. And then about two years ago is when Tim asked me to, unfortunately, the demand was growing so much that he needed more help. And he asked me to, to jump into this thing full time. Wow. So that, it, that's main gig now. <laughs> so many people are not aware that how much this is going on right now. Many people are just unaware that sex tourism and really child slavery is occurring. Can you elaborate on that a little bit? Yeah. And that's kind of that same shock and awe that I had when I first realized it. I'm sure a lot of other people may be going through that right now as we talk about it. But what it truly is, a mass production of pedophiles now happening largely in Western countries, but it's happening all over the world. And we're finding Americans that are going to anywhere where they can find easily accessible children, particularly countries like Haiti, which I'm the director of operations for, for Haiti. And because of the natural disasters, the earthquake, there's tons of displaced children that have been forced into fake orphanages and then shuttled into different trafficking networks, whether that's for labor or for sex. But a lot of times you'll find Americans going down to Haiti or going to Thailand looking for children. Human what age are you talking general, about? We're talking ages from you know six all the way to seven, eight. I mean, this is a horrible, it's much, much younger and much, much more pervasive. So there's children right now around the world literally being raped 30 times a day plus for these jobs. And they pay way more for a child than they do for a normal adult prostitute. It's really a remarkable thing that's happening. It's a, Human trafficking in general is $32 billion a year enterprise. And when you think oh of human God. trafficking, about 20% of human trafficking is forced sex trade. Okay, A lot of it's labor, but the other 20% is the forced criminal sex trade. And so we focus our organization out of the human trafficking initiative. What we laser focus on is sexually trafficked children for the purpose, obviously, of being someone's sex slave somewhere. That's what we focus on within the human trafficking problem. Wow. It's, I mean, when you say things like that, you say it so it's just hard to believe that this is such a pervasive problem. This is just going on so prevalent. And you're talking about children that are under 10 years old and people are, that's disgusting. I can't believe that this is happening. It's hard and, for and someone like myself to even comprehend that type of horrible behavior. I don't know how to say it besides that. It's unbelievable. I think it's a hard thing for all of us to digest. And I think there's a hesitancy for all of us to not want to digest just because it turns our surroundings and it could damage the way we see humanity. 
and people sometimes ask me that, does this like, does this change the way you see humans in general? And it's kind of yes and no, because not only do I see that side of it, but I also see amazing humans that are fighting it, that I get to team with and partner with people risking their lives. So you see the best of the best and the worst of the worst. And I think the one kind of gives you the hope that the other can be beaten, you know? And I think for us, a lot of people go through a struggle when it comes to really wanting to allow their mind to conceive what's really happening to these children, it's difficult for all of us. So what we're trying to do, we use storytelling as one of our main methods. And it's really why we've grown so much is we realized early on that nobody's really going to believe these stories unless we show it to them. So we bring cameras to the countries for some of our stings, not all of them by any means, but some of them we have cameras and we like to have cameras, not only for storytelling, but for, legal reasons to be able to film and use undercover cameras to film monetary exchanges between traffickers where they're actually telling us what the kids are going to be used for in plain English. That helps us on the conviction side later on after they're arrested. But also what we use that footage for is we want to use footage so that people actually first see the gravity of what we're talking about. Number two, we want to instill hope and show people that we can actually win. And that's what I think is important to do because people won't concentrate on this dark issue unless they believe there's any hope at changing it or winning. And tell me what that is. I mean, how can you make an impact on such a huge industry? I guess that's what it's called. From a law enforcement driven perspective, I would just be very blunt and honest with you. There is no way to stop it from a law enforcement perspective. What we're doing, we've rescued over 1,800 victims of trafficking to date over the last five and a half years. And we've arrested over 800 traffickers, which is amazing. This is all amazing stuff, but this is very much a drop in the bucket when it comes to the larger issue. So how are you going to stop it? That's another reason why we're trying to cultivate the messaging and help people truly understand, because only when people truly rise up in mass to expose the horrors, and there's enough moral outrage from society in general to force new legislation, to also force law enforcement to change perspectives and focusing on this issue. Only until that happens will we ever see a change to it. There's, it's going to take a almost a social movement to truly affect this. The law enforcement operations by themselves will not do it because the demand is growing so fast, which leads into another part of this problem with the rise in easily accessible pornography, which has led to the black market porn industry, which is mostly child porn. And that is what's causing this boom in child trafficking. There's a massive connection between trafficking, especially sex trafficking to child porn. There's also a major connection from child porn to mainstream porn. So one thing is fulfilling the other, and these are not easy conversations to have with anyone by any means. And nobody ever wants to come across, you know, preachy about certain issues. You know, Tim gone on the record about this many times. I think right now he's actually testifying before Congress about this issue. But part of the problem is when we interview these guys and ask them, someone that's molesting eight-year-olds, we ask them, how did you get here? You know, we try to figure out how did you get to this? And most of the time it's the same story about starting with normal playboys that led to more hardcore type porn and the rise of the internet makes it so much easier to access. Pornography also categorizes different types of things to where it kind of makes you feel normal for kind of going down a darker, maybe more strange appetites, you know, and they kind of normalize that concept. So some people like fetishes. get into this. Yes. And this is all like almost any porn site. You can find the most crazy things. And the problem is 
when they normalize it by creating a tab for it, it makes you feel like you're kind of normal. You know, other people are doing this too. And so I must be okay. People, exactly. Yeah. But then once they do develop some kind of excitement to it, then there's a huge amount of shame that comes in clearly afterwards. And it just continues this cycle of self-hate and shame that leads a lot of people down this road, which basically people just accept, I guess I am a dark person. We don't know why one person can look at porn their whole life and not go down that kind of rabbit hole. They just look at normal adult porn. But there's other people that will spiral into this kind of almost like a drug addict that needs a stronger drug every time in order to be fulfilled. We don't know why one versus the other, but this is why there's a boom in sex traffickers, predators, those making child pornography, which Tim likes to refer to as, honestly, they're just child rape videos. That's what they should be coined as, not child pornography. These are things that we've learned how to exploit, learn how to find where on the dark web, who is sending these types of images and types of video clips to other people. And that's almost every time by tracking child porn, you can track human trafficking. Many cases. Wow. What would you say, if you can answer this, I don't know, what would you say the hardest thing that you've either seen or done regarding this? I mean, what really has moved you? Yeah, I guess that's the best way I could say it. What would you say that is? Well, I think two things. The videos that you kind of have to see in some cases when you're looking for evidence and looking for other things is, is very challenging. And we do have therapists on staff and, you know, everyone kind of needs to discuss these kind of things in a different way to figure out how to keep going. It's a challenge for everybody. And Tim could tell you multiple stories just, just about that alone. But yeah, that's a tough one for me. The other one is for us, when we do the undercover role, Sting. We don't always use that option, but when we do the undercover role, you know, we're convincing these traffickers that we're these sex predators that want to have this big party. And so the hard part there is when the sting actually happens, we're arrested too, just to keep the cover going. And these young kids and these boys and girls that are brought there, you know, we never have that moment of being able to just give them a hug and let them know that we were there to help them. The last thing they see of us is being carted away into a car in handcuffs, and they really truly believe that we're those people that we're about to abuse them all. So we have an aftercare team that focuses from then on out with those children on the development and getting them proper accommodations and care and, and rehabilitation that's probably the most important part to everything that we do. But for me and a lot of the other guys on the operation side, we focus on what we do. And that's just one of the more, I guess, the sadder things for me personally. I imagine. So what happens to these traffickers, these people that are doing this? I mean, is there enough of a penalty for them to stop them from doing it? Or is it just like a slap on the wrist? I mean, I don't even know. Yeah, yeah, it definitely depends on the country. And I would say in every country, my personal perspective is, All legislation around the world needs to be much, much, much more strict on this issue. I don't think there's a country that has strict enough punishments for these types of crimes. Uh, Definitely the U.S. does not, in my opinion. So that's another area that I think there needs to be. There needs to be riots in the streets (laughs) until we stop, until at least we start with this. We stop letting sex predators back out into the known populace with nothing more than a sex predator registry. To me, it's very frustrating because we do that sex predator registry because we know statistically that the majority of these people are going to commit other offenses. That's why we have the registry. And so for me, for us to have the data on how many people are going to repeat and for us to knowingly let them back out into the populace, to me, is reprehensible. I mean, it's unfathomable. I think there is many legislation points that need to be pushed into the spotlight in our country. And I think we should force it. I think the people should almost rise up. You know, if we're going to 
there's a thousand things that you see people marching for in the streets in America and all usually very important causes. If this isn't as important or more than any of those causes, I mean, I don't know what would be. So I think this is something that we have to do. And that's something that we need to lead the way on all of these laws, not just our own country, but influence other countries to make stricter laws as well. Wow. So give me an idea. I mean, do they have an idea of how many approximately children are involved in this? Yeah. The U.N. statistics suggest, and I believe they're low, and I think Tim believes they're low too, but they're saying right now, just children forced into the commercial sex trade, there's 2 million. In the world or U.S.? 2 million in the world. That's a very, very low estimate. That's a very, Uh very low estimate by our accounts. But you got to understand, like, a lot of countries are still figuring out how to define sex trafficking. So you can imagine what these numbers are probably, you know, like. They're higher. A lot of of countries still don't even know how to report it or the legal process for how to combat it. Some of the countries were helping on that end to help the legal process and to help build up judges and help train judges and lawyers and how to actually prosecute these types of crimes. So the types of things we do, depending on the country, is what we try. We want to bring in any model that fits what they need to not just make sure we get arrests, but convictions long term. Absolutely. So what is your, I guess, definition of success in this? How do you feel like you're making progress or being successful? What is it for you? I mean, there is this element of if we can save one child from being raped every single day the rest of their life, then it's worth it. So there's the many success that you have every time there's a sting operation. And for us, like that means a lot. And it kind of enables us the hope that that instills just kind of personalizing this, I think, is what makes all of us want to continue doing it. It's kind of that old adage, you know, about the joke about, you know, the all the sand dollars or the starfish that washed up on the ocean and the little boys throwing, trying to throw them back in the ocean. But there's just hundreds of thousands of them. And the father's like, what are you going to do? You can't throw all these back in the ocean. Why are you throwing just these? And he's like, well, it matters for this one, the little boy, you know, so. The idea that you know it's worth it for just one child, I think that's the best way for people to really get behind this. Because if we can personalize it and truly, what people have to do is this: as long as it's just numbers, two million kids in sex slavery, that's not going to affect anyone. What someone has to do, unfortunately, they have to truly imagine their own child being in a situation where they're being raped thirty times a day, and you have to go there. And until you're willing to go there, at least for a second, and imagine what would you do? What would be your resolve, your recourse? Which usually for most people, it's they would do anything to stop that. Until I think that's what needs to happen in every single person in the country. And I believe it can happen. I believe our country is, generally speaking, in the world, are good-hearted people that would do something, but they don't feel like they can do anything about it. Our biggest struggle is... We have to show people that we can win, that we can combat this, and that we can have successes along the way. And if we start to believe it enough as a people, we could, I mean, a true social movement against this is the only way we're going to get anywhere. So, but it takes the small little victories for us to even start believing it's possible. And you're telling me this actually is something that's common in most countries. Is that correct? Is Absolutely. It, uh, is you, yeah. There's your problem countries that have greater issues than others. But this is going on now. Unfortunately, in the U.S., there's two sides to this. Fortunately, we're doing a lot to combat sex trafficking. We're kind of leading the way. Unfortunately, we're also leading the way in creating child pornography. We're typically, most years, we create and we distribute and we produce more child pornography than any other country. And we have most demand for child porn videos is in the United States. 
So we're also, you know, we're a big part of the demand, which is unfortunate and kind of makes you sick. But we're also doing the most to combat it, which, again, it's back to that dichotomy of you see the bad in people, but you also see the good. So this is definitely a pervasive issue. It goes on everywhere. And nobody, this is the one thing I will say, no matter who I'm talking to, people are always surprised it's going on where they are. That's just how everyone is. Everyone in any country we're in, they're like, what? This goes on here in America? They say the same thing. In my hometown here in Virginia, they say the same thing. Everyone kind of thinks it's what they do think is that if they believe that it's happening, they think it's happening somewhere else. That's one thing I've picked up on. Right. So they're, you know, they don't, they don't have to think about it if it's not close to them. Yes. I think that's purposeful. I think we all kind of do that. I'm not really shaming it, to be honest with you. I kind of get it. If you don't feel like there's something you can do to stop it, it's a very dark issue to want to dwell on most days. Yeah. I wonder how productive we'd all be if we were just consumed with this and had no recourse to help. So I get that. So how do you keep trying to provoke it? Yeah. How do you keep yourself safe, though? I mean, you're around these not good people. I mean, they probably don't care about your life. I'm talking about the bad people, obviously. They don't care about your life. So how do you keep yourself safe? Well, I mean, particularly in Haiti, I take security very seriously. We have very good teams that we've taken a lot of time to build up that we trust very much. And that's kind of the name of the game in this industry is is making sure we trust our partners on the ground because the most dangerous thing for all of us is working with even someone in law enforcement that could be being paid by the traffickers, right? someone that's playing both sides of it. So for us, being able to vet and to trust the people in these countries that we work with is paramount. That is our security in these countries. So it's the most important thing by far is the trust level that we have with our partners. I imagine. I mean, you would really have to trust somebody because it's life <laughs> or death. It can be so totally life or death for you. Yes. For every operation, you know, there's tons of meetings and legwork and relationship building and testing to see who we can trust, who we can't. You know, there's a lot of that. I mean, or else you're right. It's a very, very dangerous game to get involved in. So what do you see for the future for this, for what you're doing and, in this organization? What I would love to see is instead of us in 20 countries, we're in 195 countries. And this is something that is not only do people take to the streets to rise up, to truly unite. I think this is something that not only do these poor children need to be rescued, that's obvious. But I think what's happening in the world and specifically in our country right now is such insane division from a political perspective or religious perspective There's a lot of people just at each other. I'm not sure if the country truly hates each other as much as we're all being convinced we do. But I believe this is a season where we need something to unite behind. We need something to rally behind ourselves. So for me, it's about how do we unite people regardless of their political perspective, regardless of their preconceived ideas behind one thing that we can all agree on. I believe there's immense power in that. But I also believe the healing that would be provided for these children in doing so would also be the healing that we need as a nation right now. I don't know if you feel this way, but the nation is, a, is, and I'm not bringing this up to mention one political party or the other. It really is a very serious division that people no longer see their neighbors as humans at times because of their right. political stance or whatever it is. We need this is what I'm getting at. We need to rally and to rally behind something that America's principles were founded in. 
when you do these rescues and you rescue these children, what actually happens after that with the kids? I mean, how are they supported and what is it that, I mean, imagine this, you know, their mind is just, I don't know how, I mean, how much it's sustained like post-traumatic stress problems, you know? So how can they be restored into a normal life? How does that happen? Well, I personally believe, you know, this kind of scarring, especially emotional scarring, spiritual scarring, if you will, it takes everything for a child to recover, the physical, emotional, and I believe the spiritual level. You know, our organization, we're not in the business of promoting certain religions over another, but the spirit, there's definitely a spiritual component to recovery. What we do, what typically happens after a rescue, and it depends on the country, but most countries, they have a form of child protective services. And so the first thing that needs to happen is that what needs to be assessed is should these kids be placed back with their parents? Is there a loving home to go home to? Or were the parents somewhat complicit in the children being sold into it to begin with, which does happen? That doesn't usually mean that parents knew the children were going to be abused, but there is, in many cases, many countries, they're so destitute that it's easy to come along and say, hey, I'm going to give your kid a better life, and they take their kid, and they have nothing else, so it seems like the best option for them. The first part is the government itself whatever government we're working in has to ascertain the viability of the family situation for that child and who is going to be reached out to after the rescue. And for a lot of these kids, there isn't a viable home to go home to. For the ones that there are, that's the best option, obviously reunited with family for for healing for, for every aspect. For ones that don't have that, We then have partners that we set up aftercare facilities, long-term aftercare, where they're provided everything from trade schools to learning, you know, as they grow up, learning different arts and trades that they can, you know, make a living off of, to obviously all types of rehabilitation, all types of counseling and therapy, to be honest with you. So all these things exist at all of our aftercare centers, whether they're in Thailand or Haiti or or Colombia. It's the same mindset and same promise that we're committed to these children until they're adults, until they're able to thrive and live on their own. So that's our commitment to these children when after they're rescued. That's wonderful. So hopefully uh, we have stirred up some listeners and they're like, okay, I've heard enough. I want to help. So what would you say? Obviously, there's different levels of help for your organization. Can you give us what people can do? What should they do after they listen to this or read this? What's their next step if they want to get involved? I like the way Tim answers this question, so I'll kind of steal it from him. And I'm going to give you some real concrete things here in a second. But in general, when people ask this question of what can I do, what we typically do is turn the question back around to them and say, what could you do? And that's because everybody is coming at this from a much different perspective in life with much different resources, with much different skill sets. And so we try not to overly define. We do have some mainstream ways that we allow people to get involved. There's the obvious resources need that we need to ramp up to continue to expand. That's a no-brainer. So the easy answer is to go to OURrescue.org and to donate. You can become an abolitionist, which is people that give $5 a month are a part of our abolitionist program. Obviously, that's the minimum. 
to be a part of the abolitionist program. And that's the majority. Like, I think it's like close to 45% of our operations are funded by those types of donations, which is remarkable. And then there's volunteering. We have different chapters all over the United States. There's events that can be set up. There's a format for all this. There's campaigns that can be started. And we have this all listed on our website, OURrescue.org. There's a little tab on there you can go to that says, join the fight where we've listed a number of different ways to literally get plugged in with our organization. But I will say, and this is something that Tim says while I'll say it, if people have a perspective or a skill set, or maybe they have a massive social media reach and they want to leverage their connections or their social media reach and promote our documentaries, all right, those documentaries do so much to really show people the full story here and allow people to digest it in a way that gives them hope to join the cause. Getting more uh, visibility on those documentaries is something that we want to do. And actually, for you, I'll send you, when we're done with this, I'll send you the new trailer to our new documentary that's coming out within the next month or so about that very same mission I was telling you about in Colombia. But um, yes. So yeah, we don't want to limit someone. Like It would be awful if we were talking to someone with just an amazing network that they wanted to help us expand. And all we said was, hey, can you give us some money? You know what I mean? We want to move in a way that people take what they have, what their area of expertise is in, and leverage that for this mission. And that's what I think we can be very creative. That's what we've done with a lot of people. We've tried to be creative with it. But that being said, there is a very, very concrete way is by going to OURrescue.org and then going to our Join the Fight tab to figure out how, if you want, you could be someone that could start a new chapter. Maybe there's a chapter in the area that you're already in that you can join up with. So there's just tons of ways. We want this to be a global social revolution. That's amazing. Yeah, that would be a wonderful thing to happen. So they can give money, they can donate their time and resources and abilities, you know, whatever it is, they can contribute to the fight. You know, I actually first heard about this at a Tony Robbins event. So he's a big supporter of your organization, correct? He sure is. Tony and our founder, Tim Ballard, are, are very close friends now. And it was a couple of years ago that you know, Tony initially was introduced on air to our concept. Our documentary that came out, when the credits roll, you'll actually see we actually play that footage of when Tony first heard about what's happening to these children, how we rescue them. And he's in the middle of one of his seminars and he's talking to everyone out there. And this amazing woman stands up and tells him what we're doing. And you can tell he starts to kind of lose it up there. And he basically throws, he's like, look, I'm willing to give this amount of money to get this many kids out. And then after he does that, this chain reaction started in his crowd and everyone started throwing in money and Tony's crying up there. And it was just an amazing moment. And all that was captured on film. This is close to three years ago. And Tony wanted to find out more about what was really going on on the ground. So he actually came down to Haiti and was witnessed one of the stings that happened. And Tim Bowder was down there. And they actually had him in a disguise, which is hilarious. But, oh my goodness. but Tony got to get really close and we kept him very safe, obviously. But those guys, he got to see exactly what was happening. And ever since that moment, it has completely changed. I believe, according to Tony, this has completely changed his life for the better and helped him see what he wanted to spend his time, not just giving to, but advocating for. And so we couldn't have a better partner in Tony Robbins. He's an amazing man, inspiring individual in his own right. But to have him behind this cause and is not just him, his network, his his charisma, his the way he draws attention to things is like no other human being on the planet. So we're just so thankful 
for, I mean, we were just out with Tony. I think I ran into you out there. We were out with, what was it? UPW? No, it wasn't yeah. UPW. It was a uh, business, business, business master down in, uh, yeah. And, and right Beach. there, you know, we're down there. We're down in West Palm, and all of a sudden, Tony brings up OUR for about, what, 30 minutes and raises close to a million dollars. Wow. <laughs> I mean, remarkable man. You know, what you may not know is I was in the audience when that happened initially, when the <laughs> when he first learned about it. And you can see it on the video, but when you're in the room, it was like a wave hit everyone. It was an emotional a moment that happened in that event. It's it moved everyone. Even in the video. It's very yeah. noticeable, even in the video, that something was happening in that room that was not normal. <laughs> and for his event, nothing is normal, but yeah. Oh, exactly. <laughs> it's a much bigger statement but it was, for Tony Robbins. This Robinson was extraordinary. There. This was an extraordinary moment of clarity as well as purpose that was as beautifully orchestrated, that was amazingly put together the way how it worked, and it was just incredible. I don't think we've had anyone that's brought as much to expand OUR's presence and financial capacity, then I don't think there's anyone that's had more of an impact than Tony Robbins. Yes. And you know what's crazy is after his event, I went to another Russell Brunson event, and sure enough, he's promoting that he was doing it as well. He's a supporter as well. You know what? I, yeah, and I might have to bite my tongue. I think those two are in like a dead race to see who can, you know, leverage more support. <laughs> who can save the most children, huh? Operation Underground Railroad. I mean, Russell Brunson, another amazing human being, he actually produced and funded the first documentary. I believe you saw Operation Toussaint, but also the documentary that's coming out, I believe, this month or, or maybe early next month about Columbia. And not only that, you know, we. We go over to uh, Russell Brunson's event a few weeks ago this is in Nashville, Tennessee, and Russell Brunson decides to raise a million dollars. So, I mean, these guys and their communities, not just them, obviously them, but their connections and their communities are fully engaged, fully behind this. And it really is an addictive thing. You've experienced it when you're there. Yeah. It's something that's life-changing, obviously. And this is kind of what I was talking about earlier. It's like we need this as much as, maybe not as much as. I want to go but, that far, but I think part, I think we need this, just like these children need to be rescued. Obviously, these children have a much more dire situation, but our country is a very fractured country. And there's something in that room you were in. Tell me, didn't every single political difference and all the different things people have against each other were gone? Exactly. During that Everybody was united. Yeah. Everybody was that, united for a cause. That's what we need. And that's what we're finding is the most powerful thing to this unity. Right. So obviously that's where Tony is just brilliant. I mean, he is probably one of the greatest unifiers that I've ever witnessed. He can talk to people of 10 different religions and communicate directly to them in a way that even is spiritual that everyone connects with and grows from. It's remarkable. It is amazing. That's why I'm a fan. <laughs> so, yes, I, I'm with you on that. I get it. I want to say thank you so much for spending the time to enlighten myself as well as the rest of the world who is listening to this interview. And I really hope that it sparks people's interest and in to take action and do something. This is this is not something you just sit there and think about. This is where you do something. You take action. Yeah. You make yes. a commitment. You know, it's for a greater good and it's not about you. It's about helping others that can't help themselves and to make a difference right. in the world and to help these under 10-year-old children who are being tormented and abused and raped. And there's something you can do. This is something that is winnable. This is not a, 
unwinnable. It just never can, you know, it'll just continue forever. It's something that can be stopped. And the more people that are aware of it, the more people who support it, the better, the faster we win. And everybody becomes, we become a better world because of it. So I do want to say thank you for that. And uh, I really, truly for taking the time. Oh, it's my honor, honestly. And everything was just, it was beautiful. Thank you so much for spending the time. And for the listeners, it's your turn to go. Uh, What's the website again? One more time. O-U-R-Rescue.org. O-U-R-Rescue.org. Okay. Correct. Two R's back to back. So once they click there, they'll see a tab again if they really are wanting to get involved in a practical, like, I want to get connected to O-U-R. There's a Join the Fight tab right there at the top, and you'll see many different options for how to get plugged in with our network, with our organization, and then to leverage your network and organization at the same time. Perfect. All right. Well, Thanks so much again, and keep up the fight. <laughs> That's all I got. Thank you all so I much, Ross. We're not going to stop, man. we got a lot of work to do. Thanks for listening to our podcast. Please subscribe to be notified of all new episodes, and also like and share this to help us grow. To find out more about this speaker, become a speaker on our show, to have Dr. Carter present at your event or podcast, learn more about coaching, consulting, tissue allographs, exosomes, supplements, legal help, or how to create a million-dollar business card to dominate your local area, we're here to help you. Just text your name and your question to 561-962-1231. Write that down. That's 561-962-1231. Or you can go to our website at drrosscarter.com. That's D-R-R-O-S-S-C-A-R-T-E-R.com to learn more. Until next time, this is Dr. Ross Carter, signing off. Signing off.